Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. From the early 1600s to 1865, roughly 4 million people were enslaved in the United States. By the early 19th century, slavery was outlawed in the North, but still a brutal reality in Southern states. But a growing movement to abolish slavery nationwide was taking hold. One member of this movement was a woman named Harriet Beecher Stowe. In 1851, she published her first novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It became a national sensation and helped accelerate the campaign to end slavery. It's a very complex novel. It is a very deep and layered novel. And I know that no matter how often I read it, I notice new things in it. My name is Robin Bernstein. I am a professor of African and African-American studies and studies of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard University. I think where I got really excited about this book was when I came to understand how it intersected with U.S. popular culture, and in particular, um, material culture, stuff, stuff around us. So I was at graduate school at Yale, and I was very fortunate that the Harriet Beecher Stowe House was in Hartford, Connecticut, which was not far from New Haven. So I learned that the Harriet Beecher Stowe House had a very large collection of what were called tomitudes, uh, which were material, you know, junk, basically, uh, consumerist junk uh, that um, related to Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I made an appointment with a curator there who was incredibly generous. And what she did was she set up this very large table with tomitudes and then welcomed me in to just walk through them and talk about them. And I saw such amazing things. I saw jigsaw puzzles with the characters. I saw jam jars. I saw figurines. I saw um, hook rugs. I saw doilies. I saw, you know, uh, uh, music. Uh, um, I, I saw uh, uh, sheet music. And it just blew my mind that people wanted to surround themselves. People wanted to live with these characters. They didn't just want to read the book and then put the book on the shelf. What they wanted to do was surround themselves with this story. They wanted to live in the story. And that just blew my mind. So that was where I started to realize that this book was very special and very much unlike most other books of the 19th century and of today. Uncle Tom's Cabin was intended to be an anti-slavery book, to provide a positive view of Black people in America. But it also has another, more complicated legacy. As the story became embedded in American culture, it unintentionally birthed new racist stereotypes. Uncle Tom's Cabin today means something very different than it did when Stowe first published the story. And the way those meanings developed can help illuminate many of the racial challenges we continue to face. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Robin Bernstein to discuss Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Harriet Beecher Stowe was born in Litchfield, Connecticut in 1811. She was raised in a deeply religious household, and she received a traditional academic education full of Greek, Latin, and mathematics 
a rare opportunity for women of this time. When she was 21, she moved from Connecticut to Cincinnati, Ohio, to join her father, who ran the Lane Theological Seminary. Cincinnati sits on the Ohio River, which at that time was an important trade route and supported a large shipping industry. This brought workers from all around the country, including escaped slaves and bounty hunters searching for them. Seeing the abuse that escaped slaves and free blacks experienced in this area became a huge influence on her later work. After Cincinnati, Stowe moved to Brunswick, Maine, where her husband taught at Bowdoin College. One day, while she was in church, something strange happened. Harriet Beecher Stowe was in church, and she was hearing a sermon, and as she, as she described it later, she suddenly had a vision of um, what she referred to as a slave, an enslaved man, um, being whipped. And she was a white Northern woman, um, and she had this very vivid image, according to her. And she went home and wrote the scene um, of Uncle Tom's Cabin in which Uncle Tom is killed. Uh, this is, of course, her narrative of how it happened. Uh, but that is what we have. And the rest of the novel flowed from there. She often said that she felt like God wrote it and that God wrote the novel through her. Was she a writer before she got the inspiration for this book? She was a writer, but she had not before written any novels. This was her first novel. She was not any kind of a famous writer. Um, she was she was a relatively unknown person who really sat down to write this epic novel and um, immediately got it uh, serialized. It was serial, serialized in the National Era starting in 1851, and she was very much making it up as she went along. She didn't really know where it was going to go. She knew that at some point Uncle Tom was going to be whipped to death. But beyond that, she didn't exactly know what she was going to write next. So she was um, letting the story unfold in real time. Stowe started writing Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1850. That same year, Congress passed the Second Fugitive Slave Act. Starting in 1774, northern U.S. states began to abolish slavery. Some enslaved people in the South tried to escape bondage by running away to free states in the North and even Canada. In 1793, the first Fugitive Slave Act was passed. The law said that any runaway slave captured in a free northern state must be returned to their slave master. But even though this was law, it wasn't strictly enforced in many northern states. By 1804, all northern U.S. states had abolished slavery. Any slave that was able to escape the South and make it to the North had a good chance of staying free. This aggravated Southern slaveholders. And so, in 1850, this second, stricter Fugitive Slave Act was passed. This act required the North to return runaway slaves. Any official who avoided arresting an alleged runaway slave was subject to a $1,000 fine, which would be about $30,000 today. So it put free people in the North of all races in a terrible position of um, having to collude with slavery, having to support slavery, or having to break the law. And what it also did was it defined, it redefined people who had freed themselves from slavery in the South and who had run to the free North, who were then free people. What it did was it redefined them as inherently enslaved and only temporarily free until they got caught 
and returned. So this was this was a terrible violence, um, and and it it was one of the factors that led to the Civil War. Eventually, of course, that was long after Uncle Tom's Cabin. So Harriet Beecher Stowe was also responding in part to um, the Fugitive Slave Act. She was also responding to. Um, the abolitionist movement in general. Um, the abolitionist movement had been picking up steam for uh, 20 years at that point, and she was very much aware of it. She was very influenced by abolitionist tracts. Uh, she was influenced by slave uh, slave narratives, which had um, become um, uh, which had had become published um, in large numbers starting in about 1845. Slave narratives were autobiographical accounts written by enslaved people. These narratives humanized enslaved people and provided an insider view of the evils of slavery. These narratives were very popular among abolitionists and were a critical tool for winning over new converts to the movement to end slavery. She was also influenced by um, abolitionist writing, um, the work of Theodore Weld and Angelina Grimke and Sarah Grimke. Their book, American Slavery As It Is, was one of the texts that she read and was influenced by. So she was, so she was, she was part of this abolitionist uh, culture and abolitionist movement, although she had not taken any particular strong abolitionist action before writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. Could you give us um, a, a sense of the plot as a whole and, and take us through the story? Well, broadly speaking, the story follows Uncle Tom. It starts with him in Kentucky, where he is enslaved by what would be characterized as um, relatively nonviolent, well-intentioned enslaving white people. And this is part of um, Stowe's point that even under the very best circumstances, slavery is evil. So she starts off by showing slavery in its relatively speaking best evil circumstances. So he is um, enslaved by these well-intentioned white people, uh, and then um, he is sold. And the novel basically follows him as his um, situation gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, he is sold from one place to another, one, uh, one set of um, enslaving white people to another, and things get worse. And eventually he ends up with the um, evil Simon Legree, who is in some ways not more evil than any of the other uh, enslaving white characters, uh, but he's the most overtly violent and he whips Tom to death. Um, so that's basically the structure of the novel. Um, and there are many, many characters. There are, there. I, I don't even know how many characters there are. There's probably a hundred characters, uh, which is not that unusual for a big, fat, sentimental novel, which is what it is. Um, so it's it has kind of an epic flow. It's also very concerned about um, the... American landscape. So he is in multiple places throughout the South, and he's basically going further, deeper and deeper South um, throughout the novel. And he is encountering um, many different kinds of white people and many different kinds of African-Americans. Um, and this is, again, part of Stowe's point. What she wants to do is she wants to show how slavery is evil under all circumstances, under circumstances that are more violent, circumstances that are less physically violent. She also wants, she's very concerned with showing how slavery hurts white people. So she makes, takes great care to show um, 
white people who have been um, devastated by slavery, even though they don't realize it. So she shows a lot of uh, enslaving white people who think they are living moral lives, but who are in fact depraved. So she's very interested in uh, using that as part of her anti-slavery argument, that slavery does not only hurt Black people, slavery hurts white people. In modern parlance, an Uncle Tom refers to a Black man willing to do anything to please white people, someone excessively servile and obsequious. But that's entirely different from how Stowe wanted to depict him. The idea of this um, superannuated, uh, weak, um, uh, infinitely um, uh, self-ingratiating character, the Uncle Tom of uh, that that is now an insult. That actual that character is actually not really in the novel. That character came later through popular culture. So what we have in the novel is we have a relatively young middle aged, uh, very strong man who is deeply Christian, and who is um, when he. When he, he does do things that we would be very uncomfortable with nowadays, like he does, in fact, um, swear his loyalty to his enslavers, uh, but he's doing it out of his own Christian piety, which is difficult for us to understand today. But what he's not, he's not doing it out of self-hatred. He's not doing it out of internalized racism. He's not doing it out of poor self-esteem. He's doing it out of a particular uh, theological perspective that is relatively unfamiliar to most of us now. Uncle Tom isn't the only character from the novel that this has happened to. I think one of the most important characters in Uncle Tom's Cabin is Topsy. So Topsy is another character who entered popular culture in a way that actually reversed a lot of Stowe's arguments and Stowe's characterizations. So when so Topsy is the young black girl in um the young black enslaved girl in Uncle Tom's cabin who is bought by um St. Clair who is the father of little Eva. So in the novel what Stowe does that is very interesting is she presents this character of Topsy who is mischievous, who is funny. But what Stowe does that is actually nothing short of radical for the moment is she makes it absolutely clear that all of Topsy's misbehavior is due to the fact that she was abused. And she is explicit about that. And she describes in detail the wounds on Topsy's body the terrible wounds that have been um, uh, committed against her. And she is, she, she is very clearly identifying Topsy as a poor, abused child. And that's, that's a phrase that she uses. She, she calls her a poor, abused child. And anything Topsy does that is naughty, anything Topsy does that is dishonest, and Topsy does do naughty and dishonest things, it is all due to her abuse. And what Stowe makes absolutely clear is that Topsy is inherently good. Topsy is inherently um, a good person who has been hurt by slavery. Through Topsy, Stowe attempts to show that skin color doesn't impact a person's character. But over time, the portrayal and meaning of Topsy was completely reversed. In later adaptations of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Topsy retains her sense of humor, mischief, and dishonesty. But her reasons for being that way are left out. 
Her undesirable traits are no longer a result of slavery. Instead, she is seen as inherently flawed. Topsy became simply an imp, and she became the um, she became the prototype for what became known as as the so-called Piccaninny. The Piccaninny is an extremely racist, um, anti-black character, and the Piccaninny is a a black child um, in the United States, but also beyond the United States, who is defined by being um, impish, by being um, mischievous, um, and um, most of all, and, and by being wicked, um, but most of all by being impervious to pain. So this Piccaninny character that we see in popular culture is often um, viciously abused, and often these characters viciously abuse each other. And we, this is one of the origins of some um, some of the humor that we associate with uh, cartoons. Uh, the cartoons that we know, the Saturday morning cartoons, where it's basically just characters beating up each other all the time. So this is an exact reversal. The whole idea of the Piccaninny is that the Piccaninny cannot actually be hurt. So any kind of violence involving a Piccaninny is just comedic. It's a way of erasing the real pain, the real abuse that is suffered by African-American children in history, uh, which is, it's so tragic to me because that is the exact reversal of the point that Stowe wanted to make. Stowe wanted to make the point that Black children are hurt by slavery and they are hurt by abuse. So popular culture utterly reversed and um, perverted Stowe's point. Some other characters in the story, however, have stayed exactly the same. For example, Little Eva, the daughter of one of Uncle Tom's enslavers. So Little Eva is the little white girl um, who is um, perfect and holy and innocent and who dies. Um, and that character really did not get uh, reversed at all. Later on, um, it about... Come, come, come about 50 years after Uncle Tom's Cabin. So by the turn of the 20th century, um, Stowe's novel was in some ways seen as camp. And so by that time, Little Eva became a little bit campy. But we don't see a kind of reversal the way we see with Topsy and Tom. I'd love to understand the immediate reception and reaction to... Uncle Tom's Cabin as it came out in its time. It was first serialized in the National Era in 1851 to 1852. It was published as a book in 1852. It was immediately very popular. It sold 3,000 copies, I believe, on the first day. And within the first year, it sold over 300,000 copies. So clearly, that was a very, very popular book. And that's just in the United States. There were many, many more copies sold in Great Britain. Uncle Tom's Cabin was first available to the public as a serialized story. The abolitionist periodical The National Era published the story in installments over 40 weeks. It became so popular, the publisher John Jewett got in touch with Stowe and proposed turning the serialized story into a single book. Stowe agreed and sold Jewett the rights. It was a risky move for Jewett. He ran a relatively small publishing company and couldn't afford for the book to fail. He had to make sure this would be a success. So what he did was he launched a massive advertising campaign. He sunk so much money into advertising, he characterized his own advertising campaign as, quote, insane, 
unquote. So what he did was he, even before the book was published, he commissioned um, a Hammett Billings, an artist, to create illustrations for Uncle Tom's Cabin. He Hammett Billings created in the first round six illustrations. But the interesting thing to me is that these illustrations did not appear first in the novel. Where they appeared first was in advertisements. So these illustrations were circulating before the novel was published. So what this means is that even before the novel was published, it was theater, it was newspaper, it was visual culture, all before it was a novel between two covers. There was no moment in which Uncle Tom's Cabin was only a book. From its very beginning, it was a serialized novel, it was a novel, and it was performance. It was uh, on stage immediately. It was in material culture immediately. Why this story? What made it different? What made it special? Here's what I think. I think Stowe had a very particular kind of genius. And her genius was she was able to suck in like a big giant vacuum. She was able to suck in all these elements from popular culture. So she sucked in minstrelsy. She sucked in sentimental images of white children. She sucked in slave narratives. She sucked in all of these different elements of popular culture. And then she compressed them. And she made, she remade them in these highly volatile forms. Minstrelsy was an extremely popular and cruel form of public theater. Minstrelsy was a, um, an onstage tradition in which uh, white people, mostly at this period, almost exclusively white men, were blackening their faces with usually shoe polish or coal or something like that. They were blackening their faces. They were... Um, uh, performing a, a fantasy version of what Black culture was. There were different forms of minstrelsy. Some were oriented toward music, others humor, but Black people were always the butt of the joke. The basic effect of minstrelsy in this period was to denigrate Black people and also to unite white working class people. At this moment in history, it was largely, although not exclusively, a working class phenomenon. And uh, what seems to have been the case was that um, white working class men were uniting with each other against black, black people in general. The legacy of minstrel shows persists even today. The genre pioneered a form of corny humor meant to ridicule black people, often in the form of jokes like, why did the chicken cross the road? And we know lots and lots of other jokes. You know, why does the fireman wear red suspenders to keep his pants up? That's a minstrel joke. So minstrelsy has not gone away. It's simply gone into other forms. But in Stowe's day, everybody would have known that those jokes were minstrel jokes. Today, those jokes' um, origins are obscured. But um, at the time, they were not. Uncle Tom's Cabin subverted minstrel tropes, but it wasn't immune to them. I think part of why why Uncle Tom's Cabin was so popular when many, many other novels weren't was that, first of all, Stowe had this particular genius for taking in aspects of popular culture and crystallizing them in a newly powerful form. But then the other half of it 
was that these newly crystalline characters that she sent out into the world were particularly vulnerable to being remade. Um, They were iconic and they were reversible. So Uncle Tom's Cabin was incredibly useful to abolitionists, but it also could be adapted to pro-slavery purposes. And that's something that um, some people did very unsuccessfully immediately, but in the long term, people did it very successfully. Stowe was a devoted abolitionist, and she wanted Uncle Tom's Cabin to be her contribution to the movement. What she wanted was for white women in particular to read her novel and weep, and be persuaded that slavery was evil. That's what she wanted. For her, the way to, the the primary means to getting that was to cause her readers to, quote, feel right, unquote. So for her, feeling was an absolutely necessary part of a process. And she wanted people to feel right and then be prompted to action. Uh, She didn't want people simply to act. It's one thing to understand something intellectually, but it's another thing to understand it emotionally. By making people actually feel the horrors of slavery, Stowe generated greater urgency and enthusiasm among abolitionists to push for slavery's end. What it did was it it made abolitionism um, very prominent in popular culture. It gave people an easy way to talk about slavery. It gave people an easy, accessible way to, um, to think about the evils of slavery. One of Stowe's tools was visual language. Stowe said that what she wanted to do was write in pictures. She wanted to paint pictures with words, and she wanted to create these images with her words that were utterly vivid and absolutely visual. And we should remember that um, her initial inspiration for Uncle Tom's Cabin was her, her own vision in her own retelling of Uncle Tom being whipped to get to death. She wanted the images themselves to sear themselves into people's bodies um, and be unremovable. Uh, She wanted her characters to be visually unforgettable. And in fact, they are. Uh, So this is another way in which her novel both galvanized feeling, but also created its own staying power. Uh, She wanted to touch people. She wanted to move people. And how she wanted to do that was by involving their bodies, but especially involving their eyes. How is it continued to be read, engaged with, and adapted um, until the present day? Uncle Tom's Cabin has never gone away. Uncle Tom's Cabin is with us still. Just the fact that um, if I if one calls somebody an Uncle Tom, that those are fighting words, um, and. Phrases from Uncle Tom's Cabin are still very commonly used, even by people who don't necessarily know what they come from. So there's tremendous afterlife with the characters, with their reversals, with um, some of the things that we think we know about slavery. Um, We got them from Uncle Tom's Cabin, even if we don't realize we got them. So um, every time we see a... um, a, an imperiled white child, um, and we are asked to be worried about that imperiled white child more than we would be imp- worried about an imperiled child of color. Every time our our sympathy, we, it, we are asked to 
uh, protect a an imperiled white child in a way that we are not asked to protect imperiled children of color. That is a restaging of Little Eva. Um, so it's everywhere. Um, just the the and this is what I have written about extensively: the idea that um, that childhood innocence and its demands for protection are. Uh, apportioned to white children, and they are denied to children of color. That's that's something that I've written about a lot. So, um, so these are are aspects of Uncle Tom's Cabin that are utterly alive and utterly with us. Stowe was well aware of the demonizing myths and lies that white people told about black people in America, and the damaging effects it had on society as a whole. Uncle Tom's Cabin was her attempt to show a white audience a side of Black people that popular culture did not portray. The fact that has been very well documented, empirically documented, that children of color um, are punished more and they are subjected to more suspicion than white children who commit similar um, uh, disobedience, for example. So things like things that that are really quite normal childhood behavior, like throwing tantrums, for example. I mean, kids throw tantrums and they throw tantrums regardless of race. But um, black children, for example, and Latinx children who throw tantrums tend to be much tend to be treated like proto criminals or actual criminals rather than like children who are behaving in ways that are undesirable but normal. Uncle Tom's Cabin contributed to this legacy of racism by giving us characters like Topsy and Uncle Tom himself, characters that were later reduced to stereotypes. But Uncle Tom's Cabin was a radically progressive book for its time, and it had a positive impact on the abolitionist movement and on American culture as a whole. It forced every one of its readers to stare reality in the face and imagine a more just nation. Uncle Tom's Cabin created a set of icons, a set of racial icons that have simply never gone away. Uncle Tom's Cabin created a set of images that seared into the American psyche and continue to influence people who have no idea that they actually came from the novel. Uncle Tom's Cabin contributed some of the ways that we are still thinking about race, some of the ways that we still think about who we are as Americans. And in some ways, some of the ways in which Uncle Tom's Cabin has taught us to think about ourselves and race, some of those ways are profoundly damaging and profoundly racist. And other ways that Uncle Tom's Cabin has taught us to think about ourselves have potential for social change and social justice. So the reason we should care about Uncle Tom's Cabin is that it created a series of icons that we are still living with for better and for worse. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.